Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I'm delighted to be joined today by Heather MacDonald, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of a new book, When Race Trumps Merit, which is available for pre-order on Amazon now. Heather, congratulations on this book. It's an extremely interesting read. Uh, and I'm very glad to have you with us to discuss it. Um, Thank you. This book really takes what's happened to what used to be and still is sometimes called affirmative action and what's happened to it since the death of George Floyd, because it's quite obvious that America was moving since the 60s, has been moving towards affirmative action and this ideology of disparate impact, which perhaps you could explain for our listeners. But since the death of Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, That has become a sort of mania that has taken over large parts of American life, society, the arts, science, everything. So let's start with disparate impact and what that is. Well, first of all, I want to I want to backtrack further when you talk about affirmative action, which still is the phrase used by the establishment elites. And it's a useful phrase because it has some ambiguity in it. As initially presented in the civil rights legislation, legislation that was desperately needed to try to finally put an end to what really was white supremacy uh, at that point in the South, but had been ubiquitous before, affirmative action was presented as well. We're just going to ask employers to do some extra outreach and make sure that they're drawing on a large pool of applicants and not overlooking candidates that may not have come through traditional you know, channels of elite boarding schools or colleges or whatnot, but we're just gonna open up, open up our sites a little more. And, and I think a lot of Americans are very well-meaning, but frankly clueless when they hear affirmative action that Yale University or Cambridge University is practicing affirmative action, they think, oh, they're just, going to inner city schools and and making sure that kids know to apply. That is not what affirmative action immediately devolved into and what it does does not mean it today. I always use racial preferences. That is what's going on in every American institution, which is to prefer one racial group at the expense of another. So that was going on for decades. You had a case in the 1970s that famously challenged racial preferences in medical school admissions in the University of California, the Bakke case, that infamously gave us the fantastical diversity rationale for racial preferences in in college admissions that racial preferences are to benefit whites because whites need to learn uh, from having blacks in the classroom next to them. And maybe we're gonna get rid of that diversity rationale this spring, I certainly hope so, when the Supreme Court issues its ruling in a challenge to Harvard's racial preferences and those at the University of North Carolina. So the preferences have been going on for a long time. Disparate impact, is a a different concept and it is one that is now 
the most powerful and toxic in tearing down every institution of Western civilization. Disparate impact holds that if you have a completely colorblind, non-discriminatory standard, either a behavioral standard or a standard of achievement, and the application of that standard in a completely colorblind, non-discriminatory fashion, nevertheless, has a negative impact on underrepresented minorities, above all on Blacks, that absent some extraordinary necessity, that, that standard should be scrapped. That standard will be presumed per se racist. So if you have an expectation in a job that say for firefighters, uh, we, we've gone through endless challenges and jettisoning of entrance exams for police and firefighting in this country on disparate impact grounds. In New York City, there were decades of litigation brought against the firefighters exam, which expected firefighters to be able to read instructions on their gear, to be able to understand the chemical components of various firefighting uh, foams and whatnot. And Blacks failed that test of reading and cognitive skill at much, much higher rates than whites. So the test had a disparate impact on Blacks. Even though the test was not discriminatory, it was based on solid knowledge and expectations and it was never implemented with the, with the intent of excluding Blacks from the firefighting force. But it was thrown out because it had a disparate impact. Mm. We're throwing out the use of SAT scores. These are our standardized admission tests for college admissions. We're throwing out uh, law school standardized admissions tests. There's a massive uh, push afoot to throw out medical school admissions tests because those have a disparate impact. We've already gotten rid of grades in an important medical licensing exam because Blacks do more poorly at those tests. Again, not because the tests are racist. And the other aspect of disparate impact, as I say, there's, there's the attack on meritocratic standards. Then there's also the behavioral standards. In America right now, criminal law, the criminal justice system is being completely eviscerated. You have police officers that are instructed not to make arrests if somebody is jumping a turnstile into the subway system. You have prosecutors who are declaring they are not going to prosecute shoplifting and other forms of theft and even most ab ab abominably uh, if a criminal resists arrest, prosecutors are saying we're not going to prosecute those cases. Why? Because they have disparate impact on Blacks. It turns out you can either enforce the criminal law or you can avoid disparate impact. You cannot do both. And the reason you have a disparate impact on Black criminals is not because the law is racist, but it's because Blacks commit crime at such higher rates. And nobody in the United States wants to talk about that fact. And instead, we're blaming the criminal justice system for having a disparate impact. I'll stop here. 
This is going on in STEM, in the sciences. It's going on, in, as I say, in medicine. And it is going on most tragically, in my view, uh, in the arts and classical music and museums. You've had your Tate Modern has had some pretty, your, your Hogarth exhibit there uh, demonstrated all of the signs of, of kind of the race trumping merit ideology as well. So Rice Museum in Amsterdam, uh, this thing is spreading very fast. Well, we'll get onto the arts because I can tell from your book that's something you care very passionately about. But I would like to just, just let's stay on disparate impact for a second. And I'd like to ask about the way in which it connects to this idea of equity uh, and racial equity, which is now a sort of more popular word than equality in certain democratic circles, certainly. And equity, as I understand it, sort of means that uh, people are not rewarded so much as for their success and achievement or effort, but more that um, they are owed something like a kind of stock which is, you know, equity relates to that word, and that that should be given to them according to some sort of redistribution of justice along a very vague idea of of history. Well, I think it means equality of outcome. You know that you're lacking equity if there are any racial disproportionalities in any institution. Mm. And so the goal of equity is to make sure that so-called underrepresented minorities. And in the United States, that refers to uh, Blacks, Hispanics, and we throw in Native Americans in there, but there's such a small proportion that even though we have, you know, our National Science Foundation now, our, one of our premier federal funders of basic research is funding indigenous math circles, Navajo, Navajo math, in the hope that that's going to close the achievement gaps. Uh, so you could say they could they could have held on to equality because, again, as I say, what they're looking for is equality of outcomes. The preference for equity uh, may come from the fact that if we if we held on to equality, then you would have the the people who are against racial preferences, such as myself, saying, well, if all groups are equal, why is it that Asians are really being screwed in college admissions and whites are also being screwed in college admissions because contrary to the to the propaganda around racial preferences and admissions as i say they are always zero sum so mm. every time you're promoting admitting into a school a black student whose grade point average and standardized test scores would be automatically disqualifying if presented by a white or Asian student because they're at least a standard deviation away. By admitting that underqualified student, you are making sure that a qualified student is not getting in. And that is not a respecting of equality. So equity maybe allows you to dodge that type of, of argument. Well, the discrimination against Asian students has been quite a big story in America. And do you think that's because it's about what many people think of as a minority? Uh, I mean, it is a racial minority, I suppose. But but that's because it's a conversation that people are comfortable with having because it does seem unfair that Asian students are the victims of disparity impact analyses. Well, it is a conversation that people are comfortable with because nobody wants to use the word white. Mm. in American discourse. Yes. Uh, you, you, 
whenever I'm on TV and I, I use it, it's with a certain amount of trepidation because you are asking to be called a white supremacist. Identity politics is a extremely uneven playing field. Some groups get to play identity politics, whites do not. And, and if American whites, the non-elites that haven't been schooled in the degree of racial guilt that the elites have been ever decide that they're sick, if it, were they to start reading the New York Times and were they to see the degree to which white is now a term of opprobrium, all you need to do to take down an individual or an institution is to append the qualifier white to that person's name or to that institution, such as, let's say, uh, the Western classical tradition or this or that orchestra. Of course, the, our, our leading orchestras are now disproportionately Asian, but focusing on Asians allows people not to talk about whites. Frankly, it is, of course, it's unfair to Asians, but it's just as unfair to some white kid from the Midwest or from Montana that has worked very hard in school and has earned a has created an academic background and knowledge that should qualify him to get into competitive schools and is excluded from every single school. I mean, there's lots of white kids and some Asian kids now that are not getting admitted to any schools simply because they are not black or Hispanic. Um, but yeah, Asians provides a safe harbor. And, you know, it is, it is completely amazing. Our, um, Federal science agencies, one of them just came out with a, a yet another plea that science is racist unless it has proportionally diverse uh, scientists working in our cancer labs and Alzheimer's research labs. And so they say science is not diverse. Well, they're basically saying that Asians don't count because 45% of American PhDs in the science fields go to non-Americans overwhelmingly Asian and Indians. So somehow they don't they don't count on the diversity field. And in fact, it's true. I mean, I've said the most sought after label on a college campus today is to be called a student of color. And you get often these plaintive requests from the Asian students, please, sir, could we be a student of color too? But they can't because student of color is basically a euphemism for a a non-academically competitive student and Asians are whooping everybody's ass. Yeah. Well, let's talk about science a bit more because a bit that struck me in the book is in one of the early chapters, uh, you talk about medicine. The, the extent to which the mania has taken hold of medicine to the extent that it actually defeats medical progress is very interesting. So you talk about the example of kidney disease and that Black people who have genetic origins from sub-Saharan Africa are more prone to certain types of kidney disease. But doing tests that might identify that or, you know, take steps towards making that situation better or those conditions better um, are banned, effectively. Tell us a bit more about that. The discourse on race in the left and especially in the scientific left is completely incoherent. Uh, it is a standard requirement to earn your, your acceptability in our mainstream institutions to repeat 
and repeat and repeat that race is a social construct. There is no such thing as race, even though genetically race does exist. We recognize it, our genes recognize it, you know, the, the scientific, American scientific field is completely anti-science in this insistence. And China is, is beavering away at more research into heritability. But in any case, so we, we, we're supposed to repeat after me, race does not exist. So it, you, there was a, a, a test for kidney dysfunction that took race into account. And it modified uh, the results of a particular test for kidney functioning for blacks in order to correct for their own change, you know, disparate uh, body chemistry. And, and because that acknowledged that race exists, we had to get rid of that test. Mm. And so now the test is much more complicated. We, we got rid of that modification. Yet at the same time, our drug research is being massively encumbered by requirements that every trial for a, for a drug, so you've got a drug company that is promoted, has a possibly groundbreaking new treatment for early stage cancer, and it wants to test this in the population. And it is now under a requirement that the people within the test group and the control group be racially diverse proportionally to either the country or the local catchment area. And if you're in a white state like Nebraska, which has a very, very low black population, the Federal Science Agency, the National Institutes of Health is nevertheless going to insist that your drug trial has a proportional number of blacks in it. A doctor and oncologist told me that he was on a conference call this summer with one of the leading drug manufacturers and half of the call was about this challenge of doing diversity in clinical drug trials it was not about this or the, these are the drugs we've got in the pipeline what would you doctors oncologists like us to be thinking you know how do you think we should improve things it's all about diversity and even types of cancers that do not affect blacks uh, that are predominantly say something that will hit white males, you still have to do diverse trials. So for their clinical drug trial, red tape, you know, how do we slow down medical progress even further? Our overseers are acting as if race does exist. Mm. At the same time, they tell us that it does not. Um, and so it is it is incoherent and it is slowing science progress down. And as you say, what's really scary is in the name of, of fighting disparate impact, we are lowering our standards for medical knowledge all the way along a doctor's training. It starts with medical school admissions, where again, a black student with a mediocre uh set of, of college GPA gr gr uh, grades and a very mediocre showing on our standardized admissions test will have a 
nine times higher chance of being admitted than an Asian student with those same mediocre qualifications and a seven times higher rate of admission than a white student with mediocre qualifications. Most whiter Asian students will not be admitted with those qualifications. Most blacks will. And once they're in, the schools will do everything they can not to let them fail and will pass them along. As I say, we are now changing the grading standards on the medical licensing exams to avoid disparate impact. And doctors and, and professors are being trained, change your grading methods, change your teaching methods, all to avoid disparate impact. Well, to what extent do you regard all of this as a kind of civilizational suicide attempt? Because you call it a betrayal of Enlightenment values. America is a, is a nation that has become the most powerful nation in the world, largely as a result of Enlightenment values, I think. And as you point out in the book, China doesn't let diversity quotas influence you know, the, the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of scientific progress. And America is educationally, educational standards are falling behind in America if you look at PISA schools and so on. Is this a sort of unconscious or even conscious uh, desire among some Americans to destroy America? Yes, it's a, it's a hatred for a civilization deemed too white and too male. I mean, the feminists have been doing this with the Me Too movement, tearing down successful males, having nothing in its place. The mob can destroy very well. And there is a elation. There is a joy in tearing things down and tearing down the statues. Now, I am not going to deny that America's history was for way too long a grotesque violation of its founding ideals. And our treatment of Blacks was just heartbreakingly, gratuitously cruel, sadistic, nasty, condescending. I mean, we and we tolerated it. We either, you know, participated in that treatment if you were in the South and there was a lot of discrimination in the North as well, or when segregation was pretty much con confined to the South, the North turns its size away and tolerated it, what was in fact an apartheid state. So I don't think that conservatives have really adequately taken that into account. And, and I'm finding now when I hear the standard lines of, well, we, we fought the Civil War, and, and when I hear these peons to equality and opportunity, I am, I am a little bit cynical about that. That having been said, at this point in our history, white supremacy does not exist, period. White privilege does not exist. The only type of privilege that may be associated on a statistical level with whites is the fact that our marriage rate is still higher than minority groups. So it's marriage privilege and family and two-parent family and father privilege that makes a difference. But for everything else, the reality in America today is black privilege. I can guarantee you, Freddie, there is not a single corporation, bank, law firm, foundation, newspaper, television, studio, philanthropy, college, high school that is not affirmatively discriminating in favor of blacks. Every 
corporation is tying itself into knots to try and hire and promote as many Blacks as possible. Managers are graded on the basis of whether they have hired and promoted Blacks. What that means, given our academic skills gap, and we haven't talked about that, the reason for disparate impact when it comes to meritocratic standards is because the academic skills gap is so high. Any vaguely demanding test of, of academic knowledge or cognitive skills is going to have a disparate impact on Blacks because they are doing so poorly in school. 66% of Black 12th graders, 12th grade is our last year before college, so these are 16, 17, 18-year-olds, 66% of Black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of 12th grade basic math skills. That is being able to do arithmetical calculations and being, under, being able to understand linear relationships on graphs. That's it. They, they don't even have partial mastery of that. Um, and so that, that's what drives our disparate impact. We are tearing it all down in the name of phantom racism. And yes, we are tearing down excellence. We're tearing down the ability to compete. Science is about the scientific method. It is not about the identity of the scientist. It's not about whether that scientist is trans or gay or female or Latinx. And China, as you say, has a lot of problems. I mean, it's COVID policy. I never would have thought there could have been a more insane COVID policy than some of our Western countries like Australia, like, like New Zealand, like New York State or Michigan, but China beat us. Nevertheless, when it comes to science, they are pulling out ahead. They are ruthlessly competitive. They find their best math talent early on, they throw everything they got at it to make sure that those students live up to their potential. In the United States, we are dismantling gifted and talented programs for highly gifted math students. Why? By now, you know, disparate impact. Those gifted and talented programs with their academic expectations have a disparate impact on Blacks. And so we've decided that rather than cultivate our top talent, if that top talent is not at this point proportionally diverse, we would rather crush that talent in order to avoid disparate impact. Well, an argument that's often made is the, uh, if you can see it, you can be it argument in favor of affirmative action and, and diversity quotas and so on, that if you are a young black person growing up in America and you want to be head of you know, an academic department, say, and you see that black people are head of that academic department, you will be more inspired to, to be it. Uh, and there is a certain logic in that argument, is there not? What, what do you say to that argument? I don't buy it. How did Marie Curie manage to make groundbreaking discoveries in, in radiology, in, in understanding the, the basic particles, waves, and, and components of the universe. She didn't have a female role model. The idea that I needed a female role model to fall in love, say, with Wordsworth or, or finally with Milton when I 
when I was able to finally manage his Latinate syntax. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, that that's a a recipe for not ever going forward because if you're in a field that where you are not represented, which defines representation based on the utter trivialities of sex and race, then you're never going to get in. You know, if you can only go where members who so-called look like you have gone before, then we're stuck with the status quo. How about I want to be the best physicist? I take as my role model Einstein. Mm. I think I, as a human being, can choose as my role model any human being. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, students are absolutely being fed that line. But it is a line that constricts human achievement and human imagination and and human possibility. Well, let's move on to the arts because a large part of the book is is about what's going on there, and some of the examples you have are extraordinary and mind blowing. I mean, I'm very struck with this idea that tonal music can itself be racist. <laughs> uh, can you try and explain what what that what's going on there and, and how it's affecting some orchestras? Uh, and operas and so on in in um, in America. Well, those are two different matters. If you're talking when you refer to tonal music being racist, I, I assumed that you were talking about Philip Ewell and the um, yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, and then the, the, on, yeah. on a type of music theory by a, an Austrian named Henrik Schenker. We also have at the same time the argument that the Western classical music tradition is racist simply by virtue of the fact that most of the leading composers in our tradition have been white, but that was what Europe's demography was. It was white. Nobody says, well, Balinese gamelan music must be racist because gamelan players are Indonesian, or nobody says that Yoruba drum language is racist because it doesn't have white drummers or nobody says Chinese classical opera is racist because it's performed by and it and it was traditionally developed by Chinese. Only the West says its own traditions are per se illegitimate because they match the demography of the European continent. Mm. And we are teaching students to view our artistic legacy through the crippling, poisonous lens of race and sex. And we're giving them an excuse, as if they need another excuse, to turn their backs on what I would argue is one of the most sublime sources of beauty, whether it's the classical music tradition, which is the most close to my heart, or, or the European tradition of art or of literature, the great, the great monumental towering monuments of, of wit and irony and sublimity that is above all English literature. So that is just an incredibly poisonous perspective. And the irony, what is so infuriating to me is that the people that are promoting this thesis that we should see in Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Chopin, Smetna, Sibelius, Rachmaninoff, Brahms, what is the relevant characteristic of those composers 
is that they're all white men, that that's the most interesting or the most notable thing about them that unites them. Are you kidding? The people and the people that are saying that are the leaders of our classical music organizations, or they're simply silent in the face of these know-nothing accusations that are coming out of the classical music press, coming out of Alex Ross from the New Yorker magazine, coming out of the BBC, I'm shocked to say the BBC magazine, Gramophone, coming out of the New York Times lead music critic, Anthony Tomasini, who has called for no longer holding blind orchestra auditions. That is, a blind orchestra audition is where the musician auditioning for, say, a, a seat in the second violin section plays his violin for the audition committee behind a screen so that nobody on the audition committee can know his identity, whether that's regards to his sex, his race, whether he's a knows somebody in the audition committee. Well, Anthony Tomasini says that because orchestras are not proportionately black, that audition screen must be racist. I mean, this is the sort of insane thinking you have now, again, disparate impact thinking in America to say that a, a, a procedure that makes it impossible to tell the race of a subject must be racist if it doesn't produce the outcome we want. There is some pushback here that, that you, you dwell on a little bit. John McLaughlin-Williams, I think you have a quote from him about, you know, you, you may as well not have an addition at all if it's, that's better, would it not be? Or just to send in a photograph, he says, right. would, be, would be how to do it. So, I mean, how optimistic are you, I suppose, that in all these spheres, the arts, literature and so on, that the, the, the people who believe that greatness should be sought after, they might win. Well, I'm going to violate the, the convention here, which is that you should always give listeners hope <laughs> uh, and better to be optimistic than pessimistic. And I'm sorry, I, from what I see, I am not optimistic. I'm going to be perfectly honest. And I, I, I look forward to the optimists who can, can persuade me that there is ground for hope. I will be hopeful when I see more courage. Right now, I see a bunch of cowards. I see people who have given their lives to a tradition who are standing by and either actively participating in the destruction of that tradition. And I, I, I include in that the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I have a chapter in that book on, on the most appalling art exhibit I have ever seen that is currently still up at the Metropolitan Museum on a French late 19th century sculptor named Jean-Baptiste Carpeau. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art has um, mounted an exhibit that is arguing that abolitionist art, emancipationist art is white supremacist art. Mm -hmm. That anytime a white person, a white artist portrays a black slave He's arguing that the natural condition of blacks is slavery. It, it, is an, it is an exhibit that requires, in order to put forth its completely counterfactual thesis, requires the dismantling of every aspect of the Western art tradition, whether it's the nude, whether it's artists making sketches, whether it's the market for art. It is an extraordinary thing. And it is that thesis is being promoted by Max Hollein, the Metropolitan Museum director. So 
I had a former head of one of the most prominent arts schools in the country say to me, unless people are willing to stand up for what is great and beautiful, uh, we are going to lose an entire civilization. Good, thank you for that statement, Mr. Former Head of Arts Education Institution. He would not allow himself to be quoted by name or identified, and that's why I'm coming now with such weird circumlocutions because I'm doing him the favor of not even mentioning what type of institution he was the head of, but he would not allow himself to be named at the same time that he is saying that now is the urgent time for people to stand up and defend these traditions. So all I see around me is cowardice. I well, see it in medicine, as in the STEM fields as well. I see cowardice. It's very interesting, uh, use that word cowardice, because that's what I thought while, while reading your book about the grown-ups, I suppose you would call them. Because, you know, it seems to be very obvious if you're a student uh, and you can't really, or even at school, and you can't really be bothered to understand the complexity of a great novel or a great piece of music or, or piece of art or whatever, it's just quite an easy thing to say in an essay, uh, oh, well, it came from a racist era and so on, and you can probably get a decent mark by saying that. Yeah. But what's so odd is now you're talking about the, at the very highest levels of American arts and, and literature and academia, people are accepting that as the most interesting thing about the field in which they are experts and they've dedicated their lives to. And I think it, it, I suppose cowardice is the only answer because how else would you accept something that you must know in your heart of hearts or brain of brains to be, to be wrong? I know. I, I despair, Freddie. I really, really do. I, I aspire to be an academic. I, I, could, I could think of no greater privilege than studying literature and being able to sit in the library stacks and read these great works. And I eventually changed that because I realized first that what I'd been studying as an undergraduate in the 70s, deconstruction, was a completely absurd discourse about language. But things got even worse after the heyday of deconstruction with the rise of identity politics. That came after my time in, in college. I was privileged to be able to read books, albeit with a completely perverse theoretical lens, without any thought to complain that I was reading dead white males. It, in the 70s, believe it or not, that yet had yet to take over. But the 80s with multiculturalism, then things really got bad. But I still think that all else being equal, if, if, this, if this scourge, if this poison hadn't spread, that this is the greatest thing, or to be head of an orchestra, to run an opera company, to, to run the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Art Institute of Chicago. These are peerless collections of, of beauty that should stop us all dead in our tracks. And yet here's the, the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art saying, we are gonna put a racial lens on everything we do. We, we are now an anti-racist institution. That is what the Met now is all about, is anti-racism. Well, again, excuse me, race has almost nothing to do with 99% of the holdings in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But these lefty, cowardly, groveling museum directors and curators are so determined 
to make everything about white racial oppression, and it's never going to be about black racial oppression. They 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 apply the deconstructive hermeneutics of suspicion only to the Western tradition. African art still gets shown as oh these beautiful works of art, you know these these great you know abstract constructions. Nobody's going to say oh please tell us. African power object or, or or African celebration of the king, what you were doing to have child sacrifice or to maul your enemies or to engage as the critical connecting link in the transatlantic slave trade and, and how you have thrown your enemies into solitary, deadly confinement. Nobody asks that about African art, but we, when we when we now stage exhibits of the of the great Dutch Baroque era and the great still lifes, the the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, the Metropolitan Museum Art tells us that what we really should be seeing in these still lifes is colonialism, and the slave trade because there may be a gorgeous carved salt cellar, and maybe that salt was mined in the Caribbean. Uh, and so really what we're seeing now is just a peon to white supremacy. This is complete. It is so beyond malpractice or negligence. It's like in the realm of homicide as far as I'm concerned. Well, and there's a determination to make things mediocre, as you say in the book. Uh, and the you have the chapter on Beethoven, uh, making Beethoven woke, and the changing... The lyrics, I think, was it? Was it in? Was it Beethoven? No, it was in Schiller. Was it where they introduced the, the rapper called Wordsmith? So they're changing the content and making it less good to be more diverse. Yeah, they've they've they've, they've gone past a, what used to be a cordon sanitaire. We've for for years we've had what is known as Regie Theater. That's German for director's theater in opera, where these these narcissist adolescent crybaby you know, spoiled kids have been directing operas and staging them in completely perverse ways of updating a Mozart opera to take place on the streets of Berlin with real street walkers and having grotesque anal sex and cutting off prostitutes nipples on stage. I mean, it's just, it's the most heartbreaking perverse thing, but with, with director's theater, with these awful opera productions, they would change the setting, but they would leave the the music intact and they would also leave the words, the it's known as the libretto, the little book intact of operas. Well, now that cordon sanitaire has come down and you had the Baltimore symphony conductor, Maren Alsop, who's a real feminist, deciding that she would rewrite or, or commission new new lyrics for Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the great choral symphony that whose fourth movement ends by with a setting of Schiller's Ode to Joy. So she commissioned a Baltimore rap artist to write his own setting of for the Beethoven music. And you know, the Schiller is a it's a histor it comes from a particular historical moment and should be valued as such. It's, it's one of the supreme examples of 
this sort of overlap between an enlightenment and a romantic sensibility. It's elevated rhetoric. It's it's it expresses the aspirations of German idealism at that time, and it should be valued as a as a precious artifact from the past. And it should be valued because Beethoven chose to set it in his final symphony that has inspired billions across the globe. Mm. The setting of words to music is an extremely complicated art. Beethoven chose his notes to be the best setting for Schiller's prosody. The, the, the Baltimore rap lyrics that I've performed are make a Hallmark card look like, you know, the most profound expression of, of, of poetic grandeur by comparison. They're, they're laughable. And of course, they contain the usual invocations to gender equality. And, you know, there's some climate stuff in there. So it's, it's kind of, it, it's, we're in the dumbing down phase. And she did the same. She got somebody for the, well, all of these concerts were put off because of COVID, but she was going to perform in London as well. And she got a London poet to do his own poem. And I, I quote some of his lyrics in the, uh, in my book. And at least with our Baltimore guy, you understood them. They were trite and banal, but you understood them. Your guy out in London there is like the most parody of modern poetry. It's completely in incomprehensible. I don't know what the hell the guy's saying, but it's certainly not Schiller. Well, I, I mean, let me try and end on an optimistic note. I know, I know you're not keen to do that, but, but I think let's, let's give it a go. I mean, presumably once everything gets so crap, there's no joy to be had from it in the arts and people just won't go and therefore the, you know, the business model of it will collapse entirely. And, you know, I suppose state subsidy can prop it up for a while. But presumably things that are good and do seek greatness, regardless of race and so on, um, will always appeal to people. Well, I guess I, I guess I just think that these are fragile ties that bind one generation to another. You know, the great British philosopher Michael Oakeshott said that the purpose of school is to pass on a legacy from one generation to another it's to pass on an inheritance and when we stop doing that i mean i just fear that i actually think milton dies when we stop reading these authors they die when we stop listening to these works they die they live through us so maybe we'll go through some period like the middle ages and you have our monks somewhere transcribing these works and keeping them alive but at this point it's really crazy for the classical music press to jump on this. Let's let's teach young people to see Beethoven as simply a dead white male and therefore per se evil for Alex Ross to jump into this because these critics are presiding over a tradition that was already dying. You know, classical music is a very alien idiom now that we have the complete dominance of pop music and rock music. It's it's not just incomprehensible to young people, it is probably in most cases actively offensive. And, and so as you mentioned earlier, 
you're giving license for ignorance. You're giving young people an, a reason that they can feel proud about the fact that they have never read a novel or even tried to listen to Bach or Beethoven. And that's been going on for a long time, obviously. So I, I just fear that audiences are so dwindling that there will come a time when there is no hand across the water. And, and certainly when you have universities now that are basically saying to all conservative students in graduate school, don't even bother coming, saying to straight white males, don't even bother coming unless you are prepared to engage in the most humiliating self-abnegation to pay penance for your straight white male status and to take vengeance and back up your own self-hatred by turning on the tradition that has given us our prosperity and our freedom. Uh, I don't, I'm just not sure that there's gonna be those hands to pass that inheritance down from one generation to another. But, you know, let's check in. When do you think we're gonna see the turnaround, Freddie? When can I start to be less pessimistic? After your book becomes a bestseller, I think. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. There's some optimism. Thank you very much, Heather, for coming on to Americano. And I do hope we'll get you on again. Thank you so much, Freddie. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroze, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.